0: construes specific investment advice and if you do require advice you should seek an appropriate advisor be that a financial planner or a tax advisor or possibly a lawyer i
1: had suggested that we might be able to redeem the shares They're a little nervous in the sense that they felt that um, it was a little disorganized with this person. So one of the things that I guess they're concerned about is what will happen after the fact if they just redeem them and keep the company running, if there was a vendor that wasn't paid, for example.
0: This episode of the CE Drive podcast is brought to you by Business Career College. Business Career College is a leading provider of financial services education, including the Life Insurance Licensing Program, the entire set of courses leading to the CFP certification, which is actually where I spend most of my time teaching and where I have met many of the participants in these podcasts. We also provide continuing education credits, live classroom and webinar instruction in support of the Elder Planning Counselor designation, and a few other odds and ends in support of folks in the financial services industry. You can find the full catalog of course offerings at www.businesscareercollege.com welcome back to the CE drive podcast this is jason watt Uh, in this episode i'll be talking to jim thornton jim's a financial advisor out in ontario and had a bunch of questions here about sort of a scenario related to a high net worth client super interesting financial planning questions the episode will be good for uh, life insurance credit in all jurisdictions Um, a half a credit for your accident and sickness license in alberta a financial planning credit from FP Canada, professional development credit from IROC, an IAS credit, and a financial planning credit from MFDA. Uh, let's start with the object here. The object is going to be a favorite book of mine that comes out uh, once a year, every year. And this is um, wealth planning. Stra- well, let's get it in there, into the frame. I don't know. I can't do it. Uh, wealth planning strategies for Canadians. Uh, 2023, the camera doesn't want to focus on it, whatever, by Christine Glenn-Cowenberge. It's an amazing book. There we go. Um, And uh, Christine does just a fantastic job here of summarizing differences in provincial law. So, for example, how does marital breakdown work in Nova Scotia versus in New Brunswick versus in Ontario? Um, What's considered a common law relationship in each jurisdiction? It's so good. It's actually a textbook for the CLU program, uh, which you'll hear in the interview Jim is going through as we're having this conversation. So if you don't have a copy on your shelf, I don't think you necessarily need to buy it every year, although um, Thomson Reuters does have a subscription program where you can automatically get the new one every year. Uh, But at least every two or three years, I think it's worth having an updated version. If you're practicing um, sort of where you're delivering very technical advice, maybe you do want to update it every year. I'm going to roll into the interview here, and then following the interview, I'm going to have some follow-on comments. Um, I've got a fair bit to follow up on here, but uh, you'll hear that we cover a lot of ground, and I think it's better to roll in and then hear some follow-on comments afterwards. I'm here today with Jim Thornton. Jim is a financial advisor based in uh, Southern Ontario. Can you give us a little rundown, Jim, who you are, where you're at, that good stuff? Yeah, I'm,
1: uh, as you said, I'm an advisor in, uh, in Southern Ontario. I uh, work with uh, Asante Capital Management and um, been in the business for oh, probably about 20 years now. Um, in addition to a uh, financial advisor, uh, I am a mortgage broker as well with a uh, separate company
0: but uh, yeah, and I've been doing that probably for about eighteen years as well interesting i I, I know you're a mortgage broker, and I always forget about that year so that's it so do you have a sort of ideal client on the financial advising side um I mean our our firm pretty much specializes
1: in uh, our, our our local office specializes in more of the retirement planning um so Ah, uh, we're basically pre-retirement into retirement. that's that's where we focus. We have um, self some self-employed clients, obviously, and uh, but that's the largest chunk of of what
0: we're. And you were good enough today to reach out. You had some questions. This is not unusual. I just I'm gonna ramble a little bit here Jim. so uh, where a student will email me or a former student will email me with some questions about, you know this client, I've got this situation. And I'm going to say, often the questions are very complicated, as yours is. And then I'll come back and I'll say, and I'm ha- happy to talk about it, but I need more detail. Like, it's impossible to answer these questions with a lot of detail. And to your credit, Jim, you put together a very detailed summary of facts for me here. So this actually allows us to address some of the issues. Although, as I've already warned you, I think we're not going to be able to answer all of the questions. Yeah. So um, so I, I often think about these conversations as sort of, what can I deal with the client for? And then what are the conversations I'm going to have to have with the accountant? Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit like in cases where you do have to deal with the client's accountant? I don't know. Is, is that something that um, comes easily or do you find that it's a little bit of a challenge sometimes having those conversations?
1: um i i mean i i would say it's fair it obviously depends on the client so uh some clients are are pretty guarded and don't really want to get into that other clients seem to be pretty open
0: so I, i'd say it's really a hit and miss thing there yeah I, and i can see why that happens right people sometimes feel like you're treading on their territory or you're going to mess things up or whatever right so um Okay, so we've got a summary of this uh, client. And like you said, pre-retirement, right? I assume this person is not too far off of retirement because they're sort of early 60s, spouse is late 50s. Um, What else do we have to summarize here? What else would be a key fact for this person?
1: Uh, I would say that uh, um, wife is is stay-at-home, husband, high-income earner, and uh, works for a company overseas. Um, So... Does a lot of traveling as a result. Um, still considered a Canadian resident. Um, still Canadian citizen. Um, so he's paying taxes uh, overseas and then reports his taxes locally like he should be. Um, so he's following all the rules. He's um, he's the type of person he doesn't want to be overly aggressive on anything. Like he wants to he wants to follow the rules. Doesn't want to uh, run into trouble down the road. So. Um, he's got a corporation, uh, I, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into at this point, but keep going. Keep going. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so basically, um, situation is that, uh, he's got a large amount of, um, uh, restricted shares that his company has given him, uh, which is a publicly traded company. And then, uh, he's just received more. So some, and then he's had a whole bunch of restricted shares, uh, become vested last year. So he's liquidated those. He's got some coming up for
0: liquidation next year, and he just received a whole chunk more. So, um, can I just chime in on the, the uh, liquidation of those shares here? Because this is a common problem, right? So you said now he's maybe a little bit, I don't want to say risk averse, but not necessarily risk loving either, right? I think that's yeah. fair. So did you find it was a challenge to get him to diversify away that position or was this sort of like you suggested and it just happens?
1: Um, I did in the sense that it's very hard to talk to a client about diversification when their restricted shares have multiplied 30 times since they received them. (laughs) So it's, uh, yes, it was difficult in that sense, but and at one point, the conversation was, "You really should start looking at diversifying." And their response back was, "Well, even if it drops by half, it's not a big, deal, right?" Um, then they experienced that drop last year, and it became a different <laughs>
0: experience. <laughs> wow, that's um, tough. I okay, uh, can I delve into this a little bit more? Sure, absolutely. This is fascinating. Okay, so they. The the like the drop actually happens. Like they have whatever, I guess the value would be just looking at this, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of I don't know, I'm guessing about it peaked at two million, something like that, then but it dropped off to about a million? I'm just assuming here oh, no. they, So yeah. their
1: restricted
0: value uh shares peaked at about 30. Okay, there we go. I was because I saw two different blocks of shares in here. So okay. Yeah. yeah. The, and, the
1: second block of shares that
0: they yeah. they just received.
1: So it peaked at about 30, they, half of them came up vested. So they sold them, but by the time they sold them, that was already down. I think it was down to probably around 20 at the time. Um, oh, okay. So there was a lot there. So right. obviously it was a very different conversation. By the time these came up for vesting.
0: You feel like the client knows, like, did, is this a, like they, I don't know. Did they lose $10 million? Is that, or? Oh, he's, um,
1: so I I say he, but I mean, I have a very good relationship with both husband and wife, but he's pretty much involved. Um, He's not, so you had mentioned risk adverse. He's not risk adverse. He's actually quite comfortable with risk and growth. So the volatility doesn't necessarily bother him. Um, For instance, they've art with, with recent markets, they've already started rebounding and and things are already looking a lot better than they were. But um, I think he realized that, wow, this can change fast. So, um, I mean, as you know, uh, being in this industry, everybody is high risk when the markets are going up and they get a uh,
0: culture shock when markets are, let's say (laughs) volatile, right? well, yeah. this is like that's a fascinating case. I'm sure that you know it'd be uh, there. There's a lot going on there. I'm sure. So, okay. Um, I mean, good that he didn't let it go any further than that. I guess, right? It, you know. So, uh, but that's tough. That's uh, you know, you wonder if he's always going to feel like there's ten million dollars sort of left on the table there, or if that's just you know that's that val- uh value of a lesson learned or how that actually plays out. So. I think in his mind, he thinks it's, I mean,
1: he's a, he a critical, um, like he is really the key man in this company. Okay. So it, I, I think he did, it doesn't really faze him. Uh, like he knows what's coming down the pipeline. He knows all that kind of stuff. He's very high up in the company. So um, it's not so much of an issue for him. Um, I think it was more along the lines of, liquidating last year was more along to try and stabilize, secure what he's got here. And then future growth, whatever that ends up, I think now he's more in that position that it doesn't
0: really matter. Right. So whatever happens over there. So this is a good reminder that we shouldn't assume too much that we know what's happening in the client. I know for me, I would be sick to, like, I would feel terrible. Right. And, you know, that's, it's interesting that He's, and I'm not saying he sort of lets it ride, but that's, you know, it doesn't obviously affect him the same way it would affect me. So good. That's, that's good. Like, um, Um,
1: he also has some, uh, RSPs, uh, um, spousal RSPs. Most it's a little bit more heavy to her than him. Um, it's got, they've maxed out on their TFSAs. They have a corporation. Um, this is kind of what prompted me to reach out to you. Um, so they have a corporation. So the way this worked is they started it off, they put in a, a, a 1.2 million. Uh, they bought a building. They bought a, an adjacent lot to that building. They renovated the building to be 15 um, units, um, rented it out for a little bit until everything was finished. And then they ended up selling it. And so they had a cash influx into the corporation. They then had a subsequent sale for the adjacent lot. Um, so they were able to take out the 1.2 million um, that they originally put in. While they had that there, they had a shareholder loan um, that they were paying tax on, but the share the company actually didn't pay. Um, so they've got now left over in this corporation about a million, and we're trying to I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to get that money out of the corporation for them, uh, just to add a little bit of difficulty. They had a share they had a partner. Um, in this corporation, and um, so they want to sever that uh, that one shareholder who is a ten percent shareholder. Um, so yeah, and then every and I, the the last ninety split evenly.
0: So roughly, I just I'm gonna do a little bit of summarizing here. So we've got um, the original structure. They brought in that person from day one, so they came in at forty five shares each, and the third shareholder came in with ten shares. That's right.
1: Yes. Well it was all initial right from the very right from the get-go. So it was and basically the person that helped them put those real estate deals together
0: became the tenant. I see. So they that person was sort of taking like compensation in kind for for their sweat equity. And yeah. your clients here, their equity was literal cash. Correct. Okay. Interesting. Um now do you have a sense like did they with this, this advisor, this consultant that they were working with, was it then a, like a structured deal that person said, okay, I'll do the work. And then here's just the pro forma, you know, uh, incorporation documents or whatever, or did they use their own lawyer to do incorporation or, or do you know anything about this? Uh, I'm not too sure about that part
1: of it. I know um, the clients have um, the corporate. I don't know if there's a separate corporation on that side. I don't know too much about it. Um, It's really kind of like, let's do this deal together and you'll get 10% out of it type of thing, so. So,
0: um, yeah, that's the kind of the question here, right, is and th- like you're going through your CLU studies as we speak, Jim, right? So you've seen some reference to like buy sales in there and paid up capital, repayment of shareholder loans, like that's all relevant to this case, right? So I guess then my question is, was there an original designed method for that 10% person to extract their value? I'm sorry,
1: uh, no. So I, I don't think so because they, um, I mean, for example, they don't have a second will. They don't, I, I don't believe there's a shareholder agreement in place, things like that. So no, it right. wasn't, so- I don't think it was thought out too much on the exit
0: strategy. Okay. And- I would wager, I don't have a ton of experience with this, but based on some of what I've seen like on financial Twitter or whatever, I would wager this is a fairly common thing with these um, real estate investments where you have parties who don't deal with each other or who deal with each other at arm's length, who get together, don't do a USA, don't have a buy sell, don't have a a clear exit clause. right? So I think you're right here like the first challenge is going to be and i think this is accurate the first challenge is going to be getting that minority shareholder out of the picture yeah so do you know have they opened up discussions with that person have they made an offer is there or is this kind of where they're at It's just figuring out how to do that
1: uh that's that's where we're at right now um so the the client came to me and said we want to wind up the corporation and um and we just want basically let's get them out like um, it's not a matter of can we get out of this deal like they just they want to just sever and kind of go their own way. so they originally like we want to wind down the corporation, open a new corporation with just us and move money over and whatever and that was kind of what their thought process was when we initiated the conversation um, with uh, they haven't had a conversation. I know that for sure they have not conversed with the minority shareholder.
0: Um, this is where you get into a challenge, of course, right? Because the minority shareholder, despite being in a minority position, does wield a disproportionate amount of power, right? Because they can, you know, effectively without a unanimous shareholder agreement. And I just, if I can for a second here, I'm just going to go down a path of the USA. So that's Sure. Okay, Jim. All right. So if we have, and I, it sounds like you weren't dealing with these folks, like they, they did this, before you were working with them, or independent of advice from you, or so. okay, so no no criticism levied here, Jim. Obviously, right? Um, And and I mean, if this happened, like this happens sometimes under an advisor's watch too. I I get why this happens. So you know, they partner up with this adv- this this real estate advisor kind of person, and they create this entity and part whatever they get into business with this person. Partner up's not a good word because not a partnership. Um, and what should happen here is they should deal with a lawyer. So I said earlier, we'd say, you know, when are you going to talk to the accountant? Well, this is when are you going to talk to the lawyer, right? So they right. should partner up with, they should get together with a lawyer and the lawyer should be advising them that they should have a unanimous shareholder agreement. So actually, now that we're talking about
1: that, i sorry to cut you off. Um, I did ask them about a shareholder agreement. They did. They do have... A I know I said they didn't, but they do have a shareholder agreement. And apparently in that agreement, it does state that they decide what happened.
0: Good. Okay. So that, uh, to my mind anyways, now, depending on how broad that is. Yeah, I haven't that, seen it. Before. Okay. Well, and, and I mean, honestly, they're going to need legal advice here. You're you're. Um, I would certainly not be comfortable interpreting that document giving advice on the basis of what it says and you know that's i think that's probably something most financial advisors you give it a cursory read or whatever but no matter what i think you need to bring a lawyer in. there's a couple things here what you do has to uh be adherent to the shareholder agreement it also has you're in ontario it also has to be adherent to the ontario business corporations act so these uh And there are things we can do in the USA to override provisions in the Business Corporations Act, but that's the lawyer knows. I don't know what those are. So, yeah. um, And I have had that conversation
1: with them saying like, listen, we're going to need to get the lawyer involved. But really, this is kind of more of a high level conversation at this point. And then let's let's branch this out and we're going
0: to need to get your accountant involved as well. Like we're going to have to get all three of us working together. Perfect. A hundred percent. So I would suggest that there's at least to me and I, the lawyer and accountant might have other suggestions. I think there's two possible options here. And one is like you say, to just dividend everybody out and sort of wind up the corporation. Um, I think that actually what's cheaper to do, and I'm not a hundred percent sure on this though, is to do a share redemption with the 10% shareholder, get that person out that way. Um,
1: I had suggested that, um, yeah. so I said, I had suggested that we might be able to redeem the shares. They're a little nervous in the sense that they, they felt that um, it was a little disorganized with this person. So one of the things that I guess they're concerned about is what will happen after the fact, if they just redeem them and keep the company running, can, if they, if there was a vendor that wasn't paid for example, um, for one of their uh, renovations or something. Can they come back to whatever? So in their mind, they want this one gone and a new one over here. <laughs> and they don't and really I- care about the cost at this point.
0: Yeah, and, and that's, you know, potentially fair The you're right, like they are right here. It's it, That's very astute on their part, right? That they know that the corporation never really gets rid of its obligations. So they're... And there are some questions around this, around, you know, if they um, get rid of existing corp and create new corp, then how much of the liability of existing corp carries over to new corp? Okay. And and I would say, and I don't know the the case law around this in Ontario. I'm aware of a BC case where something similar happened and the courts did allow the creditor to go after new corp. Okay.
1: Um,
0: um, so that's one that doesn't like, it doesn't necessarily have the full effect. Now, um, my, my, and I've used this before in this podcast, my own lawyer, my, like our corporate lawyer, um, always uses this analogy with this kind of thing. And I think this is useful. I think this might be a useful thing for your client to hear. So if you have these kinds of things, like you're using a corporation to shield liability, right? You, you know that it can work, but you don't know that it, will work. And it's like the chase scene in a movie, right? So you've got the person being chased, which you know might be your client here, and the person doing the chasing, which might be, you know, a, an aggravated vendor, right? A vendor who didn't get paid or didn't get paid what they thought they should have, or whatever causes liability. Right. This is the issue with land development. We haven't even talked about the business yet, but I know they they did some land development, right? Um and so now both parties are going to do whatever they can, right? Again, just like the chase in a new movie, The person being chased, you know, they run through a shop, they put on a disguise, they duck down a back alley, they climb a fence, and sometimes they get away and sometimes they don't. So every, you know, obstacle you put in the way makes it harder for the person doing the chasing to, to catch. So, you know, that's where creating that new level of corporation, you know, I, it's like the equivalent of, you know pulling on the the new hoodie when you're ducking through the shop. Right. So, yeah. Like, uh, and I don't know if that rings true with you, Jim, but I watch enough action movies that it works for me. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that's a good way to explain it to clients. I was, when my lawyer explained that, I thought like, that's a good analogy. It shows you that you you don't know how these are going to turn out, but you take reasonable steps. Okay and it sounds like your client is looking to take reasonable steps. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. Okay. Um so yeah, the, I think the this comes down to then the question of right, do they create like and this would be where presumably, I think this is how you would do it, you would incorporate a new corporation. Okay. And then you would use section 85 and you would roll probably the shares of the existing corporation into new corporation. Okay. Take back shares of new corporation in exchange and then essentially just pay the dividend up to the to the new corporation and wind up old corporation having dividended up the old shareholder and that's where you would be doing a share redemption anyways to the old shareholder. Yeah. So um or even if you're not doing a share redemption, you're effectively going to reduce the corporation to zero assets and then go through a corporate wind up, right?
1: Okay.
0: And, you know, there's, a there's, again, and the the accountant's going to brief on this better, but there's a couple issues with that. So when you wind up the corporation that requires then a tax year end, so there's costs there. Um, And you do have to, you know, if they're looking to reduce their liability, which they are, then you're going to have a wind up both on the tax side and a wind up on the legal side, like the, Service Ontario, I believe it is in Ontario, is going to want to see that wind up as well, right? Okay. So, um, and I don't know what that looks like. That's a good question for the lawyer. Um, but there may very well be a requirement to do some degree of advertising for creditors to do that wind up. Okay. So that's that's a question for the lawyer. Is sort of how much notification do you have to give to that you know, prospective set of creditors for your wind up existing co- and, you know, it could be one of those cases where if you just kind of let it slide, like let the existing corporation go, you stay under everybody's radar. And if you have to go advertise for creditors, you know, you, you pop up for a second and it might cause somebody to say, well, hang on a second, there's something there. Right. So, okay. okay.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. So um, yeah, go cool. is, is there a way that um, in your opinion that, they could utilize the capital gains exempt in this case, like I don't know, like,
0: <laughs> right, so this is where I'm gonna give I don't always give this caveat class, but often I do is you know we spend all this time learning about the lifetime, like, you know, it all go through the whatever were nine hundred and seventy one thousand dollars this year, I think nine seventy one six thirty that that's oh. close anyways, sorry, right, whatever it is, um, or a million dollars for farming or fishing property um. So anyways you, you know like, and we learn that you know 50% active, 90% active, like all these rules about what qualifies and what doesn't. And then at the end I'm going to say but in reality it's actually a, a, a very difficult provision to use. It's Okay. It's very hard to use lifetime capital gains exemption. You you have to be doing first off, and I know this is what you're looking at here, right? So you have to be doing a share sale first off. Yeah. yeah. Right? So the share sale and and that's sort of like what we could do here right what you're talking about the you know taking existing co and rolling those assets into new hold co that is a place where sometimes you can use the lifetime capital gains exemption you can crystallize your lifetime capital gains exemption there so in that sense the the question is a is a good question right is could we pull that off um So I would say structurally, you can. Now, the real only advantage to that is then the shares that you are holding in new co, like the new hold co would have a higher ACB. Okay. And that higher ACB doesn't directly allow you to extract value from the corporation tax free, right? Like ACB does not represent my ability to extract value from the corporation. For that, I need a shareholder loan like you had before or paid up capital. Um, there is a way to do a pipeline plan using that higher ACB and potentially extract that way. And this is where you have to go to the accountant. My understanding here, again, I'm not an accountant is that that ACB created by use of the lifetime capital gains exemption is what's called soft ACB, which you can't necessarily extract if it's hard ACB, see two different kinds of ACBs. Cause why not? Then you can potentially extract that value. Right. Okay. But that's, Again, that's something you're going to have to run by the accountant. But I'm going to suggest that probably, like my warning, the lifetime capital gains exemption is probably not available here. Okay. And the issue you're going to run into is that the assets have to be at least 90% active at the time of disposition. Okay. And I don't think you're going to run that. Like now you're just dealing with straight cash, right? Well, one of the issues that I was curious about is would it even
1: count as active business income in this or uh, assets because it's property, it's rental income and like,
0: yeah, (sighs) and that's where the the second place. (laughs) Yeah, that the second test is the 50% active for the 24 months prior to the disposition. Yeah. And you're right. If the business really was in the business of being a rental business, like they and that's what they did, right? They bought property, they rented it out, they generate rental income. And rental income is by and large considered passive, and when it's passive, then you're you're right, you're not qualifying for lifetime capital gains exemption. So in this case,
1: because their intention was always to buy the building it was never to hold this rental property forever. It was to buy the building, renovate it as a rental property,
0: and then sell it for a profit. So does, would that not count as business? Right. So this is the question then. Were they in the business of being land developers? Okay. right? And in that case, then, you know, the, this is where you get into some question about the the rental income and so forth. And that's a tough one. And I did, so you asked me the question and I did some research around this and it's a, it's a very difficult question to actually parse out. So this is where like 100% you're gonna be stuck dealing with the accountant on this. And, and I would wager the accountant asks a lot more questions before you get to a clean answer on this.
1: So one of my cautions for him has been um, like, a while ago, I had, uh, had mentioned, basically, he's, he's using an accountant in town, which is, let's say, more of a tax preparer. They are, they're, like a, they're a CGA, um, but I'd say they're more of a tax preparing office than more of a planning office. Right. And so my concern for him is that I don't know if there's enough planning there for him to continue to use that accountant. Um, so I did recommend that like, we, we need to kind of need to level up here on the accounting side. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how's that conversation going? Um, he's a very loyal guy. So nice. he, I think he feels like he's kind of uh, being disloyal by considering somebody else. But I'm, I'm just saying like, it's just, it's not at the same level. Like it, it's a different level that
0: you're looking at here. And you said, I think earlier, you don't have a direct line of communication with this accountant right now, correct, yeah, yeah it, i I'm hoping because I get that, right? I you know i'm um, I think we should be loyal. I think that's a that's a respectable attribute, right. Um I'm hoping that maybe you can open up this discussion with the accountant and say, like can we bring somebody in for a one-off engagement to help do some tax planning around this corporate windup or whatever it ends up being, okay. I think that that might be the way to address that. And then you're, you know, you're not threatening the existing accountant, Mm -hmm. right? And the client's not, you know, fearful of losing that relationship. Um, And I I think if the existing accountant knows that the client wants to continue to use their services and that's what you want, right? Like, and I get that there could be benefits to bringing, but, you know, realistically, if you're bringing in somebody from one of the four letter firms or whatever, um, you know, that might even get you into billing territory. The client's not comfortable with that kind of thing can happen. Right. So, um, so yeah, I don't know. To me, you need that, that team approach. And I think part of the, the, you know, the financial advisors role here can really be to manage that team. Right. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but.
1: Yeah. And I think that would probably go over well with him. Um, taking that one-off approach and saying like, listen, you don't need to change accounts. Like it's just, you just need more planning around this. Like,
0: Yeah. So. And I, I think that's valuable, like the, to recognize that there are places where, and I mean, you do this, like you're not picking stocks for that client to buy, right? Like I assume you send them to, you know, mutual funds or ETFs or whatever the case is. So you're like, they're using a team approach with you. They have a, a PM who, you know, runs their money one way or another, right? So, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that's, um, yeah, they're, they're already doing this. They're using the team approach. They may just not recognize it yet.
1: So really the, uh, with regards to um, finding out, like, does this classify as a development business or a rental business or
0: whatever, that's just conversation for lawyers and accountants or? I think that 95% of it is going to be the accountant digging into the, the facts here. And okay. again, um, I mean, I found a fair number of articles about it. Um, even the Government of Canada website, like there's a there's a an old CRA website or, that deals with this, and it's it, it's a little bit murky. My my instinct is to say no, um, but I I hate to rely on that. I, I think that uh, there are cases where I would instinctively say lifetime capital gains exemption is not available, and it turns out to be so. Okay. Yeah. And I so that like that makes it a good question Jim right when you first asked me the question I thought uh, rental property probably not but you know the the developer thing here I'm going to say then maybe now I I am going to and I I warned you about this before I I'm going to throw one other caveat in here one other warning around this right sure uh, and that is that in that development space, and I think this is something we often overlook as like financial advisors, right? We, we think about income tax, we don't think about excise tax. So okay. you're in Ontario, you're primarily dealing with HST. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think you have, it's not the same. I know BC. in BC, they have this whole thing where there's some stuff that's HST and some stuff that's GST. I think Ontario, by and large, HST is there and you don't yeah. have to worry too much about GST, right? yeah just very few things separate it so yeah so um so the the one question that i would want to fully address here is if they were a land developer did they properly pay or charge HST on everything they should have okay and and my experience with this and i'd i'd love to hear from tax folks who have maybe different opinions but my experience with this is you're more likely to trigger some problem with CRA around HST than you are around income tax. Okay. And so, you know, you're like, you're talking about risk management with this client and that's a place where there might be a little bit of risk and and CRA um, will have no, like, you you know, you talked before about the old vendor showing up and and having a a debt that they're going to try to collect on now or, you know a contract they're not satisfied with or something like that um CRE will have no problem on an hst issue because they can come right to the individual shareholder gotcha it, yeah they don't yeah they, they have no restrictions really in their ability to collect um hst that should have been paid so
1: uh, well and and that's obviously a good thing to bring up but i would assume which i really shouldn't do <laughs> Um, that the minority shareholder will probably have taken that into consideration considering they're involved in the development business themselves. So hopefully they they would know their way around that, but it's definitely something to bring up with the client and make
0: sure. Yeah, I, I think this is another um, avenue that you can bring up with the client's accountant to allow you to get to that um that accountant who's better suited for this particular transaction, right? To say, you know, this, this other firm is, you know, able to, to do a, I don't want to say HST audit, but to look at HST and make sure that that we did it right. Um, okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to. So yeah, the, uh, just to circle back to lifetime capital gains exemption here, if it were like a giant rental empire and you okay. had more, more than six, Sorry, more than five, I apologize. Um full-time non-family members working in that giant rental empire, then your rental business now qualifies for lifetime capital gains exemption. I don't think that's relevant here, but just in case people are wondering why lifetime capital gains exemption is not available, that would be it. Now I, I think that you're you're good to have thought about lifetime capital gains exemption. Um, because I think, Jim, you can you can play this card and say, look, we're you know, this is, this is another reason to bring in this uh, this tax professional with, you know, more experience in this area. I think that's fair.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, really, the idea of reaching out to you is like, you know, is the possibility there? And, I mean, rental, it's pretty, I mean, just from our previous conversations that we've had about other stuff or whatever, I knew that was pretty much, a, that was going to be a no-go, where I wasn't 100% sure is just this whole, yeah but they went into this to buy a business renovate it sell it like that was their business not quote-unquote rental that was kind of a byproduct until they were ready so um i think at this point i at this point it'll be conversation with the client you know this you know this probably won't work but you can try it you know this here's some here's some things you should talk to your accountants about
0: and I like it because there's enough other assets that, you know, this is not a make or break for them. It's really more of a it's almost like an intellectual exercise, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um it's a nice one. And it's a nice one to to kind of, I think, to cut your teeth on, on lifetime capital gains exemption. Funny that you run into this just as you're going through the the CLU program, isn't it? Yeah. And it's
1: and it's funny that uh not only am I running into it. But like it's active, like they're they're in the process. So I'm not like it's not a year down the road, and it's not last year. Like it's now, right?
0: right. It's almost like if you uh, if you, you know, navigate this case, you should just get your CLU, right? Like <laughs> there we go. So, so um, okay, that's cool, Jim. I really appreciate reaching out to me about this. And like I said earlier, I uh, you know just laying out the facts here, I find this uh, this so helpful, and it's you know, like I said, a lot of times students will ask me and then I don't get the set of facts afterwards, which, you know, I think um, just the ability to to lay out the facts and get these questions down, I think that's, that's a key attribute for a financial advisor and really just to put the work in when you don't know what's going to happen in terms of, you know, compensation or outcomes or whatever, that it's so important, right? Absolutely. So,
1: yeah I, I appreciate you taking the time and walking through this with me. Um, yep. I know I gave you a I, lot I of sh- information that wasn't really <laughs> relevant here but I just wanted you to have a
0: full picture Thanks it's it's all relevant. I've, I actually do have one follow-on question here and that's about the fact find. So sure. is this just like for you is the fact find a verbal exercise or what do you have software you're using to assist you on this? Uh, what's the no, this, this is basically conversation
1: based and
0: notepad and conversation so no software.
1: Um at this time.
0: i <laughs> no recording the meeting, no assistant with you with the scratch pad, just straight up Jim in a scratch pad straight... notes. Yeah, exactly. Very cool. So, I don't know if that's the right way, but that's the way I did it. So <laughs> hey, it I think the only way to judge whether it's the right way or not is to say like, do you do you have the tools to arrive at a good outcome? And I think yeah. you do here. So yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thanks so much for your time today, Jim. Really appreciate it. And again, thanks for the question. No problem. Thank you. Okay. As I said, a lot packed into that interview. And I feel like I probably should have, I don't know, had other questions ready here. Um, Maybe I missed out on asking some questions about the client. I think that um, we could have had a more robust conversation about sort of risk capacity Risk tolerance, risk composure. I think that really shows up there where you have that discussion where the client says, Yeah, I can afford a loss. And then when the loss actually happens, yeah, the client was able to afford it and sort of did for the most part weather it. They didn't run for the hills, but it did cause, I think, more pain than what the client had anticipated. And maybe it's just that they thought the loss wasn't possible. Maybe they thought their risk was greater than it was. It's hard to know. But it's a good sort of object lesson in the fact that we often don't really think about our capacity to take on risk until that material event happens. So that was great. Uh, The number, I should do the number, the number for today's episode is eight. The number is eight. Okay, so I wanted to follow up on a few uh, technical items here. Uh, Notably, non-resident taxation. So I think most people will be aware of this, but it sounds like this client is earning income that's taxed in another jurisdiction. So they're a resident of Canada, but their job is really in another jurisdiction. And this is where we stumble into non-resident taxations. So what'll happen most likely, although there are some nuances here, but most likely they're filing a tax return in that other jurisdiction. This is where I'm quite interested because Jim specifically talked about dealing with this accountant who's really just a sort of tax preparer. And I'd be interested to know if there's tax advice coming in the other jurisdiction and how that might play in might be some, um, some gaps here in compliance. And that's where it might be good. You know, later on in the interview, we talked about bringing in maybe somebody from one of the four letter firms or maybe a specialty firm, somebody like uh, Moody's private client or somebody like that, And that's where what should happen anyways, is that income will be taxed in the other jurisdiction. You'll bring that tax return onto the Canadian tax return and say, look, we paid tax in another jurisdiction. We don't have to pay tax in Canada. This is a foreign income tax credit, and that's how we generally avoid double taxation. So that's intentional. I don't know what the other jurisdiction is. We have tax treaties with um, about, if I remember right, 107 different countries around the world, something like that. And that tax treaty is generally going to to codify some of that treatment. Although some of the tax treaties are surprisingly light. Some of them are just a page that sort of lays out some principles. Some of them, the US-Canada uh, tax treaty is uh, quite long. It's really like a mini income tax act unto itself. Okay, uh, going back to the risk tolerance, risk aversion thing, um, I'm always, when I hear a story like that, going to lean on Carl Richards. Uh, I love Carl Richards so much. I think the the guy's incredible, just a genius. And he's got all these great quotes for sort of managing difficult client conversations. And the one that comes to mind when I hear stories like this, you've got a client who's got so much exposure to company stock, is how much better off are you if what you're doing works out? versus how much worse off are you if what you're doing doesn't work out? So I think about, you know, continuing to have this concentration risk. Well, really, for this client, what's the difference between, you know, a $30 million portfolio and a $40 million portfolio? Does it put them that much better off versus, you know, a $30 million portfolio to a $15 million portfolio? Does it put you that much worse off? I think that kind of framing can help where the advisor can plainly see that the client is exposed to more risk than maybe makes sense in their financial situation. Now that said, we do have to work to put ourselves into the client's shoes. If the client is comfortable taking on that risk, great, but we do want to make sure that the client truly is comfortable there. Okay, Um, we talked about unanimous shareholder agreement in there a fair bit. So just as a way of framing this, The unanimous shareholder agreement is sort of a a substitute or a replacement for the business corporations act so there's a bunch of analogies for this you can think about a will so i don't need a will now i would never say that in my own situation i need a will but legally i don't need one there's no law that says jason has to have a will if i don't have a will and i die well i die intestate and then intestacy law kicks in and honestly in Alberta, it's not the worst thing, um, really, what would happen here, probably, although my situation's a little tricky, but probably my property would all pass to my wife, we have um, adult children who might file a dependent relief claim, this would be interesting, you've heard me talk earlier in earlier episodes about sort of maybe some degree of dependency from some of our adult children, but for the most part, I think my property would just transfer to my wife, there'd be no real tax planning opportunities there. No opportunities to set up trust or anything like that. So I don't want the default handling, but the default handling is available. So we've written a will to really override the provisions of intestacy legislation and create a set of outcomes that's more uh, coherent with our situation. Well, similarly, the Business Corporations Act says that when you have a corporation, the shareholders interact with one another and with the corporation, in accordance with the terms of that Business Corporations Act. Every province has one. There's a federal version of it. However, kind of like intestacy law, the Business Corporations Act is really, really thin. It doesn't do much, especially when it comes to shareholder disputes. Really, the only um, useful mechanism in the Business Corporations Act for a shareholder dispute is a provision wherein shareholders can Uh, ask the courts to force a wind-up of the corporation. So that's maybe not ideal and who knows how that actually plays out. Um, What we can do then is write the USA, the unanimous shareholder agreement, and the unanimous shareholder agreement can override those wind-up provisions of the Business Corporations Act and really can consider all kinds of possibilities This is where the buy-sell agreement that so many insurance folks, and that is really uh, a heavy focus in the Chartered Life Underwriter course, that's where that buy-sell agreement will come in, where there will be some measures in there that say, if the business owners don't get along with one another, what happens? How do they get rid of one another? Or there will be um, provisions for, if there's a premature death or a serious disability or a loss of capacity, or a loss of professional status, or one shareholder not pulling their weight, okay? anything like that, there's going to be some language in there. And by the way, the other CLU textbook, in addition to the one I mentioned earlier in the uh, in the podcast here, is the Estate Planning with Life Insurance book by Glenn Stevens. It's another amazing book, and Glenn goes sort of uh, section by section through what should go into the unanimous shareholder agreement and uses some examples of good language and bad language here. This would be a gift that the financial advisor could buy for the lawyer. And on that note, then I want to segue here. I think this is a champion segue by Jason segue into how we get other professionals involved here. So Jim talked about this challenge where the client is dealing with a tax preparer who's done sounds like an admirable job and does everything right but isn't maybe dealing at the level of competence we need to deal with these fairly complex transactions that are on the table so we don't want to disrupt that relationship 100% we don't so how do we do this without disrupting that relationship well in the case of this accountant i think first off the the thing to do here is for jim to ask the client if he can reach out to the accountant and it might be um, you know, something of a, of a difficult conversation, but to say, look, you know, the client is getting into some stuff here where I'm not sure about the applicability of lifetime capital gains exemption, or I'm not sure all the cross border issues um, are all the way addressed. You know, I, I know these can be quite complicated. And again, you have to sort of ease into it. You, you can't um, sort of call out the accountant's professionalism right away here, but or the accountants confidence or whatever the case is, but there, there's gotta be a way to do this. Now, this would be much easier if there was a pre-existing relationship with the accountant and you could call up and say simply, you know, the client's willing to spend some money here. Uh, maybe we can bring somebody in to advise specifically on this transaction. Don't worry, you're not going to lose your client out of it. Okay, And it sounds like the client's very loyal. And I think it's good to remind the accountant of that, that there's this good loyalty there. Now, just circling back to the lawyer then and why i mentioned the lawyer here because um, the lawyer is i would suggest seldom going to take advice from the financial planner although i've certainly heard it i've heard heard cases where the lawyer says you know um, i'm going to lean on you to tell me how that's going to work in practice and that's fine Uh, but one of the things that i like here is that book i just mentioned uh glenn stevens who is a lawyer himself his book Estate Planning Strategies sorry Estate Planning with Life Insurance um this book would be a great one to buy and give to your lawyer friends your lawyer centers of influence it's expensive it's about 200 bucks a copy but in so doing it's not you telling the lawyer how this is going to work it's another lawyer telling the lawyer how this is going to work i think it's a much better outcome and it's a it is a very good book it's actually it's well written it's well um, laid out it it has a bunch of stuff in it that is executable where we could actually follow up on it uh, viably okay so i hope that's all helpful um little bit more uh, sort of lecture by Jason than I might like in this episode, but that's gonna happen sometimes. I hope that you'll join us again in uh, two weeks. We're gonna have actually a lawyer of all things, an estate planning lawyer. We're gonna have uh, Jordy Ayton from um, Estate Planner. Uh, a lot of you might know Jordy. He's uh, quite prominent on YouTube or in podcasts. He's often um, linked up with the Hull on Estates uh, YouTube channel or podcast episodes Um, but he's got this uh, fantastic tech tool the estate planner and i've been playing around with a little bit it's really top-notch so um, enjoy your continued studies and please join me again in two weeks when we're going to talk about visualization in estate planning if you're listening to this episode and you're not already signed up for CE credits, this is a very easy thing to do. Just navigate over to businesscareercollege.com and you're going to sign up here for CE. Just subscribe. Currently, the pricing is $200 a year. We may be uh, introducing monthly pricing at some point, but as of today, we have a cost of $200 a year. And once you're signed up, then you can just go and listen to every episode within your subscriptions. Once you're logged in, you'll use my subscriptions here and you'll just go to the latest episode, which you'll scroll down to very near the bottom four. It doesn't matter which episode, you just scroll down and you find the one. So as of the time I'm recording this, the most recent episode is season four, episode 27. I can just start it right from here. I can do the quiz here. Once I'm done the quiz, then I can get my continuing education certificate very straightforward Um, so i would just launch the course here and i can watch the episode from here Uh, now if you happen to be already listening to it on youtube or whatever the case is you can just navigate right into the quiz you start your quiz and you're just going to go through the whole thing and then at the end of it you'll be able to see your certifications so we're going to bring up uh, designing small group products we bring this up and we Click on Wall Certificate and that's going to give me the CE certificate I need in order to maintain status wherever I happen to uh, need CE credits. So I really do encourage, I know that uh, out of our regular listeners, about 40% of you are listening to the episode for CE credits. That's about 60% who are listening out of general interest or whatever it is. Um, And I really think this is an easy way to get your CE credits. 200 bucks a year, pretty reasonable price. And as you can see from the certificate here, so and as you hear me discuss at the beginning of the episode, we have a broad range of approvals for all of our courses. I'd like to thank uh, Joe Tong. Joseph is our editor, both for video and audio content and Joe does a lot of good work to make sure that these episodes look and sound good, despite my better efforts. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Maria Nguyen. Maria makes sure that the episodes all get approved for CE credits. Uh, Veronica Tiber does the quality assurance through that process. And then we have a strong marketing team that makes sure that all of our content gets out there so that people can find us and uh, take advantage of learning opportunity they might not have known about.